0: Good morning. Let's turn to 1st Peter, 1st Peter chapter 5. And we'll pray before we get into God's word. Father, we thank you for shepherding your people so well. We thank you for um, your infinite knowledge and strength and power and wisdom that that with which you you take care of all of our needs. We thank you for sending your son, that good shepherd, to suffer and to die and to lead the way into glory for us. We eagerly wait for him to come back. We thank you for setting up the church in such a way that we, uh, your people, can be nourished and protected even in his absence. Thank you uh, for that helper who works in and through every elder, every under-shepherd, and in every sheep of the flock. God, we pray that through His work this morning, you'd create in us a greater love for you, a deeper love for our brethren, and a profound longing for the appearing of the great shepherd. In his name we ask these things, amen. Let's stand and read God's word, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Amen. You may be seated. As Michael mentioned a few weeks ago at the picnic, we went through Psalm 23. And that was pseudo-intentional. I saw a connection for what would be coming up and figured, you know, every preacher's got to preach Psalm 23 once, so that was a good opportunity. But there really is a real connection here because God, the Lord, is our shepherd. And much to the befuddlement of those who are called to be under shepherds, he has called some to be under shepherds, mere men to shepherd his flock. And that's an amazing fact. And so uh, this morning we look into eldership as uh, God has seen fit to set up his church to shepherd his flock. And uh, if you'll remember from three weeks ago now, uh, from verse 17 of chapter 4, Peter said, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We talked about how he was kind of alluding to Old Testament texts about how God was going to judge He was going to begin with the household of God in Ezekiel 9. Uh, We get this picture of Ezekiel being brought to the temple and seeing the abomination, seeing that the elders were there worshiping images and not leading the people rightly in, in right worship. And they, in this vision, then they go and say, "'Kill the old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary.'" So they began with the elders who were before the house. So it may be coincidental, it may not. I don't think it is that he immediately moves into eldership. After just talking about judgment beginning in the household of God, he moves to eldership. And so I think that's the context there from uh, the end of chapter 4 is this coming judgment uh, and the glory that Christians have in Christ but also the sincerity with which eldership needs to be undertaken. Uh, so he begins here, So, or therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Verse 2, the, the command is, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So it's interesting to me the priority that, that Peter gives to eldership here, that he gives to shepherding the flock. I don't think... In this context, I would have gone immediately to eldership like he does. I probably, you know, there's this coming judgment and the suffering and the glory of Christ. Let's talk about the individual. Let's talk about the individual experience. But Peter's concern with the flock as a whole, he recognizes this essential role, this practical role that shepherds play in the life of the church. Uh, Jeremiah 23 is a striking cross reference here. It's very interesting. He says, In verses 1 through 4, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock and out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall there be any missing, declares the Lord. So the parallel here is striking. We, we have all of this exile language in First Peter, this spreading out of the sheep and this gathering in of the flock. And he says, he prophesies, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. So it seems that these elders, these faithful elders in Asia Minor are this fulfillment of this prophecy that God in the new covenant, is setting faithful shepherds over his people. And of course, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that as the shepherd of the sheep. Now remember, he had probably Peter probably never met these people before in person. So the way he addresses them rather than you know with a personal name or something as Paul often does is the elders that are among you. Those elders that are among you, you do this. But more than that, he's also saying the elders are people who are among the sheep. They are members of the sheep. They are there with the sheep and they are to shepherd that flock that is among them. So the work of elders is limited, both in their authority and in their uh, locality. They are elders among the sheep. They are members of the flock themselves. They are in fact sheep. It's very interesting in, in Luke when Jesus sends the 72 out and they come back and they come back with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing gift that Jesus has given to them. But listen to this, what he says next. is very profound. He says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That that's the more the greater blessing is to be a sheep. And being an elder, being an a elder over the flock is just an additional added benefit, an added joy. But the true joy is to be a member of God's flock. Now, these elders are responsible also for the flock that is among them. That is, that they're not over the whole church. Literally in verse 3 he, he calls it later, a lot that has been given to these elders Um, and so we're not to take the place of Christ as elders, uh, to be in charge or to be concerned, overly concerned with the entirety of the universal church. I think as elders, sometimes we want to take that burden on ourselves. You know, the success of the entire universal church is on my shoulders and that's exhausting and it's frustrating to kind of look around at the state of things and expend all our energies trying to figure out how can we fix the church or how can we succeed, secure its success into the future and while we ought to be invested in the state of the universal church now and for the future elders are called local elders are called to be faithful shepherds to really even if it's a large church a very small portion of God's flock the big picture is is Jesus's problem and, and praise God for that we we need to trust him we need to trust that he will preserve his church. Peter's exhortation to the elders is this, in light of the truths expounded in the book, shepherd your allotment of the flock as faithful under shepherds of Christ. Shepherd your, your little portion as faithful under shepherds of Christ. This call must be particularly near and dear to Peter's heart, as he, you know, he had that kind of restoration lakeside breakfast with Jesus, and, and he's he had denied Christ, and then he's out there fishing and he sees Christ on the shore. You got to be wondering what's going through his head. He's he's worried that this relationship is is broken, and so he dives into the water, and he has this breakfast with Jesus, and Jesus pulls him aside, and he asks him three times. Peter, do you love me?" And he says, "You know that I love you," and each progressive time he gets more and more flustered. "You know, you know everything. You know that I love you." And Jesus each time tells him, "Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep." So this this act of eldership, this shepherding role is particularly near and dear to Peter's heart. And the people of God, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, need to be fed. We need to be guided. We need to be protected and cared for. And the Lord, as we saw from Psalm 23, is that perfect shepherd. However, as I said, in his perfect wisdom and the continual bafflement of the people called to the task, uh, he's called some of us to be under shepherds. And he's called, and also, uh, let's not forget... We tend to forget this. He strengthened us and gifted us and empowered and enabled the people he's called to tend his sheep. Now, I just got through talking a little bit ago about how it's greater, it's a greater blessing to be a part of the flock than to be an elder. And so the question rightly comes up you know, if every elder is a sheep, And this is, I think, particularly relevant in our congregation where most of the heads of households are elders. If elders are sheep, who is their shepherd? Who is the shepherd of the shepherds? And of course, one obvious answer is Christ. Christ is the shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the shepherd of us all. And moreover, in that biblical framework of a plurality of elders, we shepherd one another. We take care of one another. But I think ultimately the answer is, in my mind, that the shepherd is shepherded the same way every other sheep is. That is to say, I think the primary means of nourishment, of protection, of guidance is the Word of God, given first of all through the means of grace, preaching of the Word, sacraments, and prayer. And that is a ministry to us, even if we happen to be the ones administrating them. Anecdotally, I, I I personally am deeply encouraged when I study for Sunday. You know, if it's for the sermon, for communion, some other element of the church service, uh, this is one of the great pro- privileges of, of my life. And I always learn much, and I often gain, gain greater insight into who God is, and my aff- affection grows for Him. But there really is something special about the actual corporate administration and participation in these things that nourish even my soul in a way that the study alone does not you know i walk away from the sermon feeling fed in a way that i wasn't before even though i'm the one who studied and thought and chose the words to put in it god has given the ministry of proclamation of the word a special place and that feeds the sheeps and hearts of the minds of his people whether it's the proclaimer or the hearer and this is important because a faithful elder never shepherds according to his own wisdom or his own authority or his own insight. He's always dispensing what it is that God deemed good and in a way that God has instructed us and on the authority of the one com- who commissioned him. But even Peter here, you know, an apostle appointed directly by Jesus himself, says, I am a fellow elder with you. That's interesting. His description of himself is very interesting. A fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. It's almost like he's listing his qualifications here for giving his exhortation. But he could he could have said, you know, as an apostle chosen by Jesus Christ directly, an authority of the highest order in the church, I command you to execute your commission with excellence. But he doesn't speak that way. Instead, he speaks with the humility of a man who knows he himself holds no intrinsic authority. He speaks as a man convinced within himself of the genuine value of what he's commending and commanding. And he humbly takes upon himself, as this apostle, the title, fellow elder, holding himself to the same standard as these men in Asia Minor. And he says he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which I take to mean he he's one who testifies about the sufferings of Christ primarily you know he he didn't as far as I know, witness Christ on the cross; he was hiding, but he now bears his own marks of suffering for the name of Jesus, and he proclaims boldly the suffering of Christ, even as he heads toward his own inverted version of what Christ suffered. But as we've seen through 1 Peter, suffering and glory are two sides of the same coin. Suffering for Christ goes hand in hand with the glory to be revealed at the second coming of Christ. And it's precisely because Peter and his audience join Christ in suffering and join Christ in glory that they do press on to faithfulness in their callings. So in other words, Peter exhorts these elders not mainly here as an authoritative apostle, but simply as a Christian who struggles with the same struggles that these people have and rejoices in the same hope that they have. So I want to exhort us, specifically the brothers, the elders among this flock, that this, what we are called to in eldership, is a serious responsibility you know, We're not to be like those elders of Israel who failed, who scattered the flock, who failed to lead this, the people in right worship of God. He says this is very serious judgment begins at the household of God. We are given this high and difficult calling of faithfulness in an age, broadly speaking, marked by persecution. So we should not take the call lightly. And likewise to the congregation, which includes all elders and shepherds. Even, I think, we who affirm this biblical doctrine of a plurality of eldership and generally affirm the authority given to elders by God just to lead the flock can struggle with submitting to that teaching. We're still individualistic, individualistic, self-sufficient Americans who would rather be self-shepherded than shepherded. And eldership is a remarkable grace that God has given us. So the more we truly submit to to the instruction and guidance God provides by Christ's under-shepherds, I I think the more we do that, the more we find ourselves in a deeper state of of rest and contentment. It was God's idea to shepherd the flock in this way, and he is really the the, the ultimate wise great shepherd. Peter goes on here and he describes to us, he tells us how it is, the elders shepherd the flock. The way they shepherd the flock is through oversight. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So this word oversight is the same root word, episkopos, it's often translated bishop, uh, which has caused some through the years to to distinguish the office of elder from the office of a bishop. Uh, the New Testament uses these terms interchangeably. The same men, it's the same office, and here in this passage, the office of elder is given the duty of episcopos, the duty of oversight. It's kind of like as a shepherd observes the flock, observes the sheep. A, a real shepherd observes the sheep, monitors them for any malnourishment or, or disease, watch scanning the surroundings for danger. That's the role of oversight. Paul tells the elders at uh, Ephesus, he says to them, pay caref- careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, <coughs> same word, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I think that's something we as elders have to deal with that a, r- a regular shepherd doesn't. In, r- in real life, a wolf can't put on sheep's clothing. But in the church, the flock of God, there are sheep and there are wolves and the wolves can look just like sheep. And it's not so easy. as just a quick tug on the ear to see if they're wearing a mask. We have to be discerning Peter goes on here, he describes three attitudes, uh, both a positive way and in a negative way, these descriptions of uh, the manner in which the elder is to execute his task. The first one he gives is that oversight should be undertaken willingly. should be undertaken willingly, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So this kind of makes me think of somebody like Caleb Law. You know, he He's trying to become a ranger. That's something you have to want to do. That's not something you can just do because you feel like you have to, right? You have to want it. And eldership, uh, particularly in seasons and places of persecution, is one of those types of jobs. You you have to want it. You have to value it. If we feel constrained, perhaps we not, maybe we shouldn't take it on. Having said that, I don't know if that's quite what Peter's saying. You notice this is put forward by Peter not as a qualification. You know, if, if you want to, then do it. If you don't, don't. Rather, he's addressing a group of people he already named Presbyteroi. They're already named elders. He says, you, and this is a command, you elders, you do this, not out of a sense of compulsion, but willingly. In other words, he's not necessarily giving them the the bow-out-if-you-don't-feel-like-it option. Rather, he's saying, if you feel as though it's more duty than privilege, take this opportunity to correct your attitude. And that may sound a little strong, but I think that's what he's saying. And I think also the church is in desperate need today of men who will step up and step in to that difficult but rewarding office of elder. Which makes me grateful for this church and the abundance of shepherds that God has given to us. That being said, though, I, one does not just change his attitude. I've tried a million times to just by my own mustard change my attitude, but mustard doesn't cut the mustard, if you will. When it comes to moving the heart, I and I I see three things here. I think in the text which kind of need to be cultivated in us if we're to work uh, with willingness. And really, these are true of any calling, not just eldership, but any Christian calling. And the first is to love God. Cultivate the love of God. Notice he says, as God would have you, or literally according to God. And I think God wants us to labor in love for him. Remember, what what did Jesus care about when he was asking Peter to tend his sheep? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Shepherding flows from love. Uh, Clowney has a good quote here. He says, In some American and British churches, Peter's exhortation would seem strange. Why should any elder serve unwillingly? The responsibility of church office has been trivialized. It is no more than a minor inconvenience that can be readily declined. But in countries where conversion to Christ is illegal and baptism brings a prison sentence, the office carries a different meaning. Quite apart from persecution, any real shepherd of Christ's flock will soon feel the weight of pastoral care. Peter knew, however, that Christ's yoke was easy and his burden was light. The enthusiasm of the elder of the new covenant springs from the joy of tasting Christ's grace. So the first thing we need to cultivate if we're to change our attitude to to undertake the task willingly is to love God. Secondly, we need to love the church. Peter has called us here the flock of God. First John is faithful over and over. John says, if you love God, you love His people. You love the brethren. Again, from Acts 20, what I just read, he he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the value of the church and of the flock of God cannot be underestimated, and that is something else we need to cultivate for to do our work with willingness. And third, we need to look forward. We need to have a forward-looking worldview and we'll develop this a little more later from verse four, but Peter is emphatic throughout the book and expresses twice, even in this passage, the motivating effect of having a worldview which looks forward. If we cultivate that, that eschatological mindset, which we've talked so much about through first Peter, you know, setting your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ we do that our priorities our interests our affections will see a dramatic and positive shift so the third thing is to look forward that we need to cultivate and if we do these things love God love his people and look forward we won't be able to help but be excited about our work whatever the post is that God has assigned us to the next attitude that he addresses here is that oversight should be undertaken eagerly, with eagerness, which is very similar to willingness. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You know, it's pretty clear in the New Testament as you read through that there's always been this financial element to gospel ministry and really even in the Old Testament there was. And just as there are now, there were people then who would leverage that fact to their own advantage to abuse it take advantage of the people of God. And this is what Peter calls here shameful gain. So, money, of course, is a terrible reason to undertake the office of, of elder. In Second Peter, Peter says that greed is, in fact, a mark of a false prophet. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you So again, this seems to go back to to motivation. Why are we doing this? And if our lives are really ordered around a love for God, around a love for His people, and around that eschatological framework, money in the grand scheme of things really becomes no object. And greed really is just another form of compulsion. He's already told us, don't do it by compulsion. And with greed, we're just compulsed by our inner desires. Peter again is calling us to eagerness, not compulsion. As he says in 1 Timothy, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The third attitude he addresses here is that oversight should be taken, uh, undertaken humbly, with humbleness. He says in verse 3, Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So if hunger or greed is a poor motivation for eldership, so is the thirst for power. I translated this verse when I was translating fairly literally, and I like how the the Greek uh, illumines the meaning a little bit more. I basically said, not as overlords of those allotted to your care, but being patterns for the flock, And, and that's fairly literal. An elder is not a lord above the laity. Rather, the language here seems to be almost that of stewardship. You're given a portion of the flock, allotted the care of these people, and you have this responsibility, this opportunity to serve them and to cultivate them and to lead them. As Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last will be first, and he taught us this by washing the disciples' feet. So rather, I think, than kind of push the flock along with a bullwhip, that's one way to, to move people from behind. The elder is to lead the way from the front. He's to be an example to the flock. The image in the, in, in the uh, original language is something, I think, similar to a die that, that would be used for casting coins, you know, to stamp the coins. You have the, the pattern that stamps the image into the coin. I think that's the image there. Um, and so many have noted through the years that, that the qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy or in Titus, they're all things aside from teaching that any Christian is called to do, right? And it's extraordinary because it's not like these qualifications are there to set elders above the rest. In fact, they're there so that if they're following those, they can serve as a pattern for the life of the flock. So I think the bottom line of all of these these. Attitudes that Peter deals with here it seems to be don't undertake the task of eldership with ulterior motives. <laughs> it is worthwhile in and of itself. And one of the main reasons it's worthwhile is given to us here in verse 4. He says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, Calvin here has an extended quote I wanted to, to read to you, and I just love this quote and I think you'll see why in a minute. He says, except pastors, which he uses pastors more in terms like pastorally, like any elder, except pastors retain this end in view, it can by no means be that they will in good earnest proceed in the course of their calling, but will on the contrary become often faint. For there are innumerable hindrances which are sufficient to discourage the most prudent. They have often to do with the ungrateful men from whom they receive an unworthy reward. Long and great labors are often in vain. Satan sometimes prevails in his wicked devices. Least then the faithful servant of Christ be broken down, there is for him one and only one remedy, to turn his eyes to the coming of Christ. Thus it will be that he he who seems to derive no encouragement from men will assiduously go on in his labors, knowing that a great reward is prepared for him by the Lord. And further, least protracted expectation should produce languor. He at the same time sets forth the greatness of the reward, which is sufficient to compensate for all delay. An unfading crown of glory, he says, awaits you. So I appreciate this quote, and the reason I appreciate it is Calvin is very realistic here. You know, we, we talk about in eldership here in this sermon willingness, eagerness, enthusiasm, and I kind of begin to despair. Sometimes eagerness and enthusiasm are difficult to come by. You know, do, do elders have to adopt this sort of a, the energy and the, the motivation of, of one of those exercise instructors, you know, in front of the class at the gym? What I see here in verse 4 and what I see in Calvin's interpretation is that laboring toward the return of Christ is a long-term game. We may not always feel this overflowing wellspring of exuberance as we undertake the callings God has given to us. We don't need to feel guilty if our heart doesn't leap for joy at every prospect of our Christian labors, though it probably should sometimes. But the willingness... But the kind of willingness we are talking about here is not that, that flash in the pan. It's that low and slow cook over the long haul. You know, we don't want elders in the church who are excited for a time and then just fizzle out. We want men who are profoundly convinced of the value of it all and willingly settle in for the long haul. So he says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of Glory. That is worth the patience. That's worth the focus of a life lived unto God. The commendation of the chief shepherd at the end of all things is is what motivates Peter, who is that fellow elder and partaker of the glory that will be revealed, which makes being a witness to the sufferings of Christ worthwhile. Paul says, for this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I wanted to close uh, with the last line of the hymn we just sung. I didn't, I didn't plan on doing this, but it's such a great line. It just excites me every time. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration And there proclaim, My God, how great Thou art. Amen.